reading is from John chapter 15, verses 9 to 17, and can be found on page 1083 of the Church Bibles. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Helen, for reading that to us. Right, as we come to look at the Bible this evening, let's pray before we start. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity we have to meet together, study your word, to worship you in peace and safety. Thank you for the many acts of remembrance that have gone on around this country today and will tomorrow for their safety. And Lord, we just pray now that you would fill this space with your Holy Spirit. You would help us to really engage with what you want us to hear tonight. And I pray that anything that's unhelpful will just fall away and be forgotten. In your name. Amen. So this being Remembrance Sunday, I've been thinking um, quite a lot as I've prepared for this about how we remember things. What is it that triggers memories for us? How do we use those memories to shape our lives, both individually and corporately? So as families or communities or nations and cultures, how do we do that? So we're all very unique individuals, and we all experience memories in different ways. Um, Some will be fleeting glimpses of things that we can just about get our heads around, and others will be much more overwhelming and much more sort of tangible somehow. And usually when we're remembering things, at least one or other of the five senses will be um, involved. So I'm going to show my age now. For me, the song Heart of Glass by Blondie, um, which was in the charts at the time, takes me back to a particularly hot and sunny day in Kent where I was growing up. Um, And as I walked down from the seawall, from the seafront, past the amusement arcade that was blaring this song out. I can, it takes me right back to that time, and I can feel the heat coming up from the pavement. I can smell that unique fish and chips and candy floss smell that is unique to British seaside um, places, especially where I lived, which was a bit like Peckham on Sea, to be honest. It wasn't great. But it's a really real memory, and every time that song comes on, I go right back there. It's weird. Or... 
there's that certain smell from a certain type of soap that they used in the postnatal ward just after I'd had my babies. And every time I smell that, that takes me back to the very early days with small children. Now, that is a different sort of memory. It is a mixture of emotions. There is joy, exhaustion, love, exhaustion, pain, and quite a lot of exhaustion. And for me, hearing and smell seem to be two of the senses that most often trigger memories for me. And you may well have different things that you can think of that trigger memories for you, whether it's a particular sight or a colour or a sound or something like that. Now, I realise that I've now lost most of you. You're all off down memory lane, but do feel free to come back and join us. This morning, we were thinking about the acts of remembrance that have been taking place around our country today. Um, And the fact that so much time and effort goes into honouring the fallen and quite rightly too. We were thinking about the Festival of Remembrance that happened at the Royal Albert Hall last night, bringing us images of all those young military personnel and the very elderly veterans as well, the Chelsea pensioners in particular. And that really poignant moment when all the poppy petals fall from the roof and they land on their heads and uniforms and ground around those military personnel. There's the very iconic sound of Big Ben striking to mark the start of those two minutes of silence that is observed at the Cenotaph. And then all those retired and active servicemen and women marching past the Cenotaph or being wheeled past the Cenotaph if they can no longer manage on their own. And they do it with great pride. And their medals are all buffed up and shiny. And then tomorrow there will be the many quieter acts of remembrance at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month, the day, the moment that signalled the the armistice that came into effect at the end of World War I. So these ceremonies help us to bring history to life because their stories are often told around this time as stories of great courage. We find out about people, the faces behind the names. There was a lovely elderly gentleman on BBC Breakfast on Friday called Harry, and he was telling us about his experiences, and he's been raising money to make a memorial in northern France, and they showed him how it was coming on, and he was overwhelmed. A real person who's had a real experience, real memories of losing his friends. And of course, the retelling of these stories means we don't forget them. They become a very important part of our culture and our shared memory, and that's really important. But we also have to acknowledge the sad fact that none of these acts of remembrance will ever stop the bloodshed. They don't seem to make any effect at all, do they? Since the end of World War II in 1945, there have been 27 conflicts that involve British troops costing the lives of thousands of men and women. And of course, there have been many, many more around the world. Footage is beamed to our phones, to our laptops, to our tellies, right into our houses, into our pockets. And we watch communities torn apart by civil war, or religious intolerance and hatred, or just by invasion by larger, greedier nations. So the wars, the two world wars that were supposed to be the wars to end all wars, haven't stopped the brutality at all, have they? 
Each year then more names get added, more poppy petals get added. War then isn't the answer. So our reading tonight from John showed us a different way. Here is Jesus telling his disciples to love me because I love you. And I love you because my father first loved me. So it's this ultimate cycle of love, if you like. The father loves Jesus, who then pours his love out into us so that we can pour it into others, who then pass it on even wider. And the great thing is that some people get to experience this love who've never experienced it before. And so they then get drawn into this circle. And so it goes on and on and wider and wider as people pour out love and praise to their father. This love is a love that's world-changing. And it's a love that's been very willingly given. Jesus referred to his disciples as his friends, not his servants. So the command that he gives to love each other is obeyed because of this deep love as friends. It's not some kind of military strategy. It's not a command from a higher official. Jesus' surprising conclusion is that if you love someone with the love that God has given you through Jesus, then you should be willing to pay the ultimate price for another person, giving up your life to death. So this love can be costly. It can be extremely costly. This is the love that is commanded by Jesus to his friends. We are to love one another as he has loved us. It's not some kind of flimsy, selfish love that falls apart when it doesn't get what it wants. We've all experienced that sort of love. Or when it meets trouble or when it just comes up against something hard. But it's this, this is the kind of love that never lets go. It never gives up. And of course, what the disciples didn't realise at that moment in time was that Jesus was going to be the example for them of the extremes to which this love could go. He didn't just make bold statements. He was willing to do what he said. I think it's quite useful for us at this point just to put this passage into context in in where it is in John's Gospel. So the verses that were read today are part of a wider passage that's sandwiched between the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and his betrayal by Judas and subsequent arrest. The disciples, of course, have got absolutely no idea what is going to happen to their friend. None. They are still hoping that this Messiah that they have befriended, have come to know, will somehow overthrow the Roman occupation that was going on at the time. And they're really hoping that there's going to be a great victory and it's going to be overturned and God's kingdom reign is going to come there and then and it's going to be victorious and glorious and lots of fanfares. And so, of course, his death is absolutely the last thing on their minds. And yet... They've already been rather unsettled by some of what Jesus has to say with regard to the fact that he's going to leave them. They hadn't expected that. And he tells them too that some of them are going to act in ways that they couldn't have predicted. Denial, betrayal and desertion. And at this point in the story, Judas has already gone off to do what he had to do. 
So we've got the privilege of listening in as Jesus teaches, as he points them to his father, and then he prays for them. Those chapters are really amazing. If you've got a chance later, have a look at those chapters in John, around John 15. They're really good. These are some of the most intimate moments ever recorded by the New Testament writers, hearing Jesus' heart for his followers. And so now, on the night before his death, he wants to reassure his closest friends. They're not his servants, they're his friends. He wants them to know just how much they're loved. He wants, even commands them, to love others with the same love. And he warns them that it might well be costly. And we know from history that some of the disciples really did pay that ultimate price. It was costly. But he wants them to know that they have been chosen by him. And so they've been chosen by his father too. To be loved and then to love others. All of this that he's been talking about has been rooted in this command to love each other. Because this is the sort of love that loves others that are indifferent or broken or antagonistic or just plain awkward. And it's the sort of love that will change situations. It's the love that's going to take Jesus to the cross and it's the love that will change the course of history. It did change the course of history. So in the light of all this and this passage we read, What I find so striking is the contrast between the way that the world expects us to remember great acts of courage and self-sacrifice and the simple meal that Jesus instituted to enable his followers to commemorate his death. The death and resurrection of Christ marked the greatest battle that has ever and will ever occur in history. Jesus' death on the cross was what Satan, what the enemy had been planning for. He wanted the Son of God out of the way permanently. But what the enemy didn't realize was that because Jesus' death was the willing self-sacrifice of a sinless human, the power of death and hell would be broken forever. And so Easter morning must have come as a very nasty shock to the enemy. Because the crucified Christ was risen. He was very much alive and he was recognisable to his friends. So all the plans of the enemy had come to absolutely nothing. Hooray! But instead of instituting lavish celebrations, Jesus instead asked that his followers remember him in bread and wine. There is such humility in how Jesus set it all up. But what he asks us to do is profound in its simplicity. And it would have stirred really vibrant memories ongoing for those disciples who experienced it for the first time. So let's go back to those disciples for a minute or two. They were having a meal together, during which Jesus had washed their feet. Now, this had made Peter especially particularly uncomfortable. This was not what he expected. So this man who they knew as Messiah and their leader had taken on the role of a servant. Now this would have been totally counterintuitive for the disciples. 
They, so that later on, they would not quickly have forgotten the feel of the water, the roughness of the towel, or the discomfort of the fact that their leader was kneeling before them and washing their grubby, smelly feet. And then in the middle of the meal, he pauses to give thanks to his Father in heaven for a loaf of bread. And he breaks it and he shares it around. Imagine for a moment watching the hands of Jesus as he took a fresh loaf and he tore it apart. Imagine that yeasty, doughy smell. Imagine the feel of the crust and the soft, crummy inner. Imagine their faces as they pass chunks to each other. As Jesus said, I want you to do this when you meet. I want you to take bread and break it and thank my Father. Because this ordinary loaf of bread is going to represent my broken body. Imagine the gasps. And the confused looks. I expect a bit of muttering with James and John at the back as well. As they try to work out what on earth he means. Then at the end of the meal, again a prayer of thanks to his father. But this time for wine. Ordinary red wine. The sort that came from the vineyards around Jerusalem. They would have watched the grapes growing and ripening and coming to harvest. Perhaps they knew the producer personally. Perhaps they'd got the wine in, especially. Perhaps they had helped in the past crush grapes and make wine. And so the taste was richly familiar. Nothing particularly unique or special about it. It was just wine. And yet now Jesus wants it to represent his blood. Because the breaking of his body will come with the spilling of his blood. He's describing a brutal and messy death. He's describing crucifixion. Imagine the memories that these actions would have evoked later on for the disciples. This meal that Jesus asks us to remember him by is brilliant in its simplicity. It takes very ordinary items, bread and wine, transforms them into symbols that have such deep meaning. Now, the Apostle Paul had to um, set some boundaries out for the early church. The Corinthians were really good at getting things wrong, and they'd really got things wrong with communion. And so he gave them some structure around which they could use on their regular um, communion times, if you like. And this is largely the format we use today. You'll find echoes of it later on when we break bread together. This is what Paul said. This is 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those first disciples and the early church, this was a 
simple format that Paul is describing here. And it would have been full of memories, wouldn't it? Perhaps of meals actually taken with Jesus himself. The early church would have had people in it who remembered Jesus, who'd walked with him and talked with him. Perhaps there would have been reminiscences from some of the disciples of what actually happened in that upper room, that first um, communion, if you like. And perhaps the way those very, um, the memories of perhaps the way those very ordinary people, very ordinary people, a ragtag bunch, really, of disciples, weren't they? Had received everyday objects from the hands of their friend and their leader. And how in the days that followed, the significance of the bread and the wine changed forever. And it's the ultimate visual aid. It works because it's simple. And it is something that is set within the natural part of life, isn't it? Friends just sharing a meal together. It's simple, it's easy to do, and it's profound. And I think it's good to remember that it doesn't have to be a totally somber experience either. Because Jesus himself broke bread and shared wine with friends after he had risen from the dead, after he had beaten death. So this meal is also a celebration of the triumph of life over death. And it's set within the context of um, the community of family, of shared memories, shared experiences, happy times together. And it has echoes of the Passover meal that the Jews had celebrated for generations. They knew about bread and they knew about meat and they knew about coming together for a shared experience. And it's intended, this meal is intended to bring people together in praise and thanks and worship to commemorate that love that wouldn't let go. That, life, that love that wanted us to share life with Jesus in eternity. But it also reminds us that this was a once and for all deal because never again would someone have to die for us. Jesus had done all that was necessary. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. It was done. There was nothing left to do. And then finally, this meal points us towards the ultimate conclusion of all that Jesus had set out to do. Because this meal is not intended to be celebrated forever. One day, Jesus has promised to come back. He's promised to return. And then this commemoration won't be necessary because we'll have him there with us, face to face. And we will share a banquet with him instead. And we will share it too with all those who have loved and trusted Jesus down through history. So my question for us tonight is this. How do we view communion this simple meal. It's very, very familiar to many of us. And it's so familiar that it can become a bit mundane or routine. Now, I'm asking these questions because these are things I've felt in the past, so I'm not having a dig at anybody. So is communion just something that is part of a service on Sunday for you? Is it something that has to be done before the service can end so that you can go home to watch David Attenborough or whoever? Do we go onto autopilot as the liturgy comes up on the screens and we know the words so well and we just parrot them out sometimes? Or 
Do we allow ourselves the chance to use our imaginations, our senses, to encounter the risen Jesus as we take the bread and the wine? Do we each ask the Holy Spirit to come and show us something of the depth of meaning that is conveyed within these simple elements? I wonder how precious this meal is to us. It would have been very, very precious to those first disciples. Recently, I had the opportunity to experience this simple act of remembrance in a hospital setting. I'd undergone a change of medication for depression, and it had gone horribly wrong. And I ended up in A&E, and then um, on a ward later. This simple meal had a profound effect on me because I realised in a fresh way the power of remembering what Jesus had done for me. I sensed his presence with me in the middle of the chaos and the mess and the fear. And I found the familiar words incredibly comforting. I had a very real sense that taking bread and wine enfolded me in a community of millions around the world who were sharing the same meal. I remember that I wasn't alone or isolated, and I felt the power of what it symbolized. Somehow the space that I was in had become holy space. It was God's space. It was safe space. And I sensed in a very um, fresh way the love that Jesus had talked to his disciples about, the love that would never, ever let you go. Now, I hadn't expected to feel those things. I was in in A&E for three nights before they found me a bed somewhere useful. Jonathan and Juliet brought communion into A&E, into the cubicle that I was in. And I hadn't asked them to do that. In fact, I told them I really wasn't very good company, so probably don't come. But they ignored that, which is good. Um, And they brought it in, and we shared bread and wine together in that setting. That night, it was the final night I was in in A&E, all hell broke loose in the A&E department. There were fights, there were conflicts, there were drunk people, it was awful. And all that was separating me from all of that mess and confusion was a curtain, which kept getting bashed and locked. It wasn't a very nice experience. But somehow I knew that it was safe because we had broken bread together. We had shared wine together. Those elements had become so important and so fresh, so real. I took bread and wine initially because Jonathan and Juliet brought it in and they're bigger than me and that's what Christians do and, you know, I just got on with it. But God really ambushed me in that place. He allowed my vulnerability to give me a much deeper sense of what this meal really means. And he showed me that there was nowhere that couldn't be affected by that love. And later on, when I was in a ward, I took bread and wine again in the chaplaincy. Completely different setting, really, and a much more formal liturgy. But again, it was really good. The words were comforting. It meant something really real. I wonder what you need to do tonight to allow this simple meal to feed you in the way that Christ intended. I wonder what you're going to allow him to do in you. I wonder how he's going to change your perceptions of bread and wine.
Can I ask you to stand with me? We're just going to spend some time in prayer. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come into this place now. We invite you to touch each one of us. We ask that you would highlight areas in each of our lives where we can allow you greater access, where your love can really impact us. Thank you that your love for us is totally unconditional. Thank you that you love us in spite of everything we've done or are. Thank you that your death was sufficient for each one of us. There are no ifs or buts, no exceptions. Lord, we pray that you would enfold us in that love. Where we are hurting, you would comfort. Where this meal has become routine, you would startle us. You would surprise us. We pray that as we remember what you've done for us, you would use all of us, all our senses, all our who we are, to deepen our understanding of the price that you paid for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to stay standing in a moment. We're going to sing a song, Remembrance, that takes us to the Lord's table. Uh, just to share one thing 